0: Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after the city was smitten, in the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and brought me thither, In the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate, And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither, declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. And behold a wall on the outside of the house round about, and in the man's hand, a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and in hand breath. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. <clears throat> a theological system <clears throat> that takes God's people back Uh, to a temple, uh, to an altar, to a priesthood, uh, to sacrifices of the Old Covenant, uh, is a system which detracts from the perfection, from the completion, and from the sufficiency of Christ's atonement and his work upon the cross, which all of those things that we just mentioned pointed to. You see, that's a system that takes Christ's church back to its infancy. According to Paul in Galatians 4, that period of time under the Old Covenant, those ceremonies, was a period of infancy of the church. A church under age, as the Westminster Confession of Faith in nine. Chapter 19 section 3 says it was taking it would be taking the church back to its ABCs back to kindergarten if you will I submit that scripture does not give us a future expectation of a rebuilt temple with a restored levitical priesthood who offers sacrifices upon a brazen altar for sins, and yet with God's approval and blessing. Though there is a scriptural expectation for a future conversion of Israel as a nation, and though there is a expectation, of a future restoration of the land to Israel as a nation and wherein it will dwell in safety and in peace as was promised to Abraham and to his posterity as an everlasting possession. Nevertheless, I submit there is no biblical expectation of a future rebuilt temple having God's blessing today we will consider two passages that are used to support a rebuilt temple in the future and the reinstitution of the levitical priesthood and sacrificial system in the future and uh, we'll next lord's day consider uh, and probably be our last sermon on whether there is a future expectation in the Bible of a rebuilt temple so next Lord's Day will end that particular uh, answering that question but the two passages that we want to focus on this Lord's Day are both in Ezekiel Ezekiel uh, we're not going to read chapters 40 to 48, but that's the, that's the area, that's the portion of Ezekiel that deals uh, with uh, the temple, uh, deals with the sacrificial system, deals with the Levitical priesthood, the altar, uh, all of those ceremonial portions of the law uh, in Ezekiel 40, verses 43 uh, through 48. I'll be summarizing basically much of what we read there. And the second passage is in Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. We had looked at the verses just prior uh, to the ones we're looking at today, last Lord's Day, in dealing with the land. There are verses that follow immediately after the promise of the land to Jacob forever in the Messianic age, where it speaks of uh, the sanctuary uh, being built in the land forever. Uh, And so we want to consider that in light of uh, the question whether God is going to grant uh, to Israel a rebuilt temple and a reinstitution of the priesthood and sacrificial system in the future. So Ezekiel, first of all, chapters 40 through 48. Ezekiel received his inspired visions that we find in this uh, book as revelation from the living God while he was in Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah was a a contemporary, a little bit before in time than Ezekiel. Uh, Daniel was a contemporary with Ezekiel in Babylon at this time. You remember from our study in Daniel that there were three deportations uh, from uh, Judah and Jerusalem to Babylon. In 605 B.C., Daniel and his three friends were deported, taken into captivity, along with many others. In 597 B.C., Ezekiel was taken into captivity, along with others. And then finally in 586 B.C., uh, we find that the temple and the city is destroyed by the Babylonians. The book of Ezekiel is filled with prophetic visions that consist of many symbols, such as four living uh, creatures or beings uh, that have, each one, four faces. A human, um, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Obviously, again, we're dealing with symbols there, not actual uh, beings that look like that. As well as, uh, again, other symbols, a wheel within a wheel, and Ezekiel. uh, A book that is taken and eaten. There are symbolic years that are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, marks upon the forehead, a valley of dry bones that come to life, a river of life that proceeds from the temple. And there are many more. These are just a few of the many symbols that we find in the book of Ezekiel. And as we come to prophetic books, uh, especially with regard to books that have many symbols in them of this nature, we must allow Scripture to interpret those symbols for us. The infallible rule of interpretation, we're told in, again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is Scripture. It is Scripture that is the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture. If you have an infallible uh, word of God, then you're going to need an infallible rule or key to be able to interpret that which is infallible. Not something that is fallible to interpret that which is infallible, but something infallible to interpret that which is infallible. This is simply the, a literal view of interpretation sometimes again the meaning of literal uh, when we talk about that's literally true by way of prophecy uh, or by way of interpretation of Scripture uh, is taken in a way that and understood in a way that is truly not biblical because literal interpretation is simply allowing God to tell us uh, what he means by what he has written, what he has inspired in his words. So if it's a symbol, it's literal literal interpretation to allow God to interpret that symbol for us rather than interpreting the symbol as it appears to us uh, in Scripture. Now as we consider the vision of the city and the temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, I would draw you to another portion of Scripture that is a very close parallel to what we see in Ezekiel. And that's a vision that is given to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapters 21 through 22. I believe we have some help in understanding and interpreting the city and the temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 by going to Revelation chapters 21 through 22. In both of these visions, uh, Ezekiel and John are taken to a high mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem is built. In Ezekiel 40, verse 2, In the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south. Likewise, in Revelation 21:10, John says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, And showed me that great city, the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Holy Spirit clearly states that the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 is not a literal city. Clearly, the Lord says that that city represents, signifies the glorified church of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 21 verses 9 through 10 we read and there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying come hither I will show thee the bride the lamb's wife that's the church And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so here the city in Revelation 21 represents the church, the glorified church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would submit that we ought to likewise, as we'll continue to work our th- way through some of these symbols, that we ought to likewise use that as a frame of reference with regard to Ezekiel's vision, with regard to a church, as detailed as, as we find that in chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel. So likewise, likewise we find uh, great detail. In Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, great detail about what this city uh, looks like. And yet this city doesn't represent a, a city. It represents the church. Different stages, I would submit. Ezekiel's prophecy is talking about the earthly church of Jesus Christ. John's prophecy is talking about the glorified Church of Jesus Christ. So different stages, different ages, but yet the same Church of Jesus Christ. There's also a river of life that flows from that glorified city. In Revelation chapter 22, Verses 1 through 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, and bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so likewise, there is in ezekiel's vision a river of life that flows from the temple and trees that bring healing along the sides of that river in ezekiel 47 verses 1 and 12. afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house the house here refers to the temple when we read Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 40, and it spoke of the house in that context. It was speaking of the house of God, uh, the temple, so likewise here. Continuing in Ezekiel 47:1, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and waters came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And then it proceeds to talk about in the next several verses how this, uh, these waters uh, bring life wherever they go. Uh, they they uh, heal. Uh, they uh, cause that which is dead to come alive. And then we read in verse Ezekiel 47:12. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side shall grow all trees for meat, uh, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his mouth or a uh, month's, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine, for healing, in other words. So we have again, uh, that parallel. we could go on with a number of other similarities and parallels between the symbols that are used with regard to the city uh, in Revelation chapters twenty one through twenty two and the city in Ezekiel chapters forty through forty eight. But I think hopefully you without going you know much farther, you can understand, you can see, that these cities are speaking of uh, the church of Jesus Christ. These cities are speaking of uh, the earthly church in Ezekiel and the glorified church in Revelation. Just as old covenant worship is used symbolically in the book of Revelation to speak of new covenant truths, And realities, for example, in the book of Revelation, speaks of a temple in heaven, uh, in Revelation 7:15 and Revelation 11:1. It also speaks of an altar in Revelation 8:3, and in Revelation 11:1. It speaks of the ark of the covenant as well, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. And so likewise, there's a temple, there's an altar, uh, there's Old Covenant worship that's used in Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, likewise, to represent New Covenant truths and realities. Revelation is looking back uh, to what Christ has established. Ezekiel is looking forward to what Christ shall Uh, establish just as various symbols are used in Revelation chapters 21 through 22 to represent the glorified Church of Christ as we've noted so the same or similar symbols are used in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 to represent the earthly Church of Christ and so we see again that John's uh, vision in Revelation the vision that Jesus gave to John is very helpful to us in interpreting Ezekiel's vision. That's what we mean by scripture interpreting scripture. But not only are there similarities uh, between the Holy City and Ezekiel's vision and the Holy City in John's vision, but there's also dissimilarities. There's also some differences as well. For example, the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapters 21 through 22 is forever rid of all effects of the curse of sin. In Revelation 21, 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And then in Revelation 22:3, and there shall be no more curse. <coughs> and yet, as we come to Ezekiel's vision in chapters 40 through 48, Uh, There, the church yet suffers under the curse of sin. There are sin offerings. Uh, There are uh, sacrifices made in that temple. In Ezekiel 46, uh, verse 20, there's still sin. The curse of sin, uh, again, has been removed by the death of Jesus Christ is looking forward. But there's still sin that is present Uh, at the time that this particular temple in Ezekiel is looking to and looking uh, and anticipating. There's also, so that was uh, Ezekiel 46.20, for example. Uh, There we read concerning the sacrifices offered, Then said he unto me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they shall bake the meat offering, that they bear not them out into the utter court to sanctify the people. We likewise see in the vision of Ezekiel that there are priests there who will teach God's people the difference between that which is holy and that which is profane, between the, the difference between that which is clean and that which is unclean, in Ezekiel 44, verse 23. <clears throat> and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and clean. So, the idea that there are, um, that there is in this earthly vision of the church that it's pointing to sin uh, to be forgiven and for priests to instruct and teach the difference between what is right and what is wrong, uh, again, implies we're talking about the church, but at two different stages of development, the glorified and the earthly. There's a temple in the city of Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel 40 through 48, um, wherever it speaks of the sanctuary, wherever it speaks of the house, um, there we find that it's uh, detailing what the temple looks like. It goes through in great detail, the the temple uh, building. Uh, but there is no temple uh, in John's vision. Uh, John twenty-one, twenty-two. another difference. And I saw no temple therein, that is in that uh, city that comes from heaven, the glorified uh, church of Jesus Christ. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Another difference speaking of two different periods of time or uh, two different stages or ages of the church glorified versus earthly thus in ezekiel's vision and john's vision there there is represented in symbolic language the beauty and the glory of the church of jesus christ which jesus has purchased unto himself however again just keep repeating this i want you to To be able to walk away and to understand two different periods, two different ages of the church. But the most important reason why I believe a future rebuilt temple, one of which God approves, is not depicted in Ezekiel 2 chapter 40 through chapter 48 is because it would contradict what is revealed in the new testament it would contradict what is revealed in the new testament and let me give to you a number of ways in which if there is a rebuilt if there were to be a rebuilt temple Uh, that uh, people build uh, on their own in the future, that it would not have God's blessing. It would not be approved by God because, again, it would contradict many places in the New Testament. Let's just look at a few. The New Covenant Church of Jesus Christ is, in fact, God's new temple. According to the New Testament scriptures, it is the new temple in, in which Ezekiel's temple is realized. First Corinthians chapter three, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, "Know ye not that ye collectively, the church, ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you." If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? Likewise in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses 21 through 22, Paul says, In whom, that is in Christ, all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, He's talking about Jews and Gentiles brought into the church are fiddly joined together into the holy temple of God, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You see, in this new holy temple that God has that we find, the New Covenant Temple of of the Lord. The temple is composed of living stones, not stones of of, of brick and mortar, uh, not a physical building. Uh, The temple of God is composed of living stones. Those believers who come in faith and trust in Jesus Christ are joined together, in the temple of God, and in them he dwells. Among them he walks. His presence is with his church. Wherever we go as his people, Jesus promises that he will be with us, even to the end of the age. 1 Peter 2, 5 The Apostle Peter Peter says, Ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God by Jesus Christ. We are that holy building, that holy house of God. Another reason why I believe that we will not see a rebuilt temple with God's approval or blessing in the future is that there will be no reinstituted Levitical priesthood, because Jesus Christ is our high priest, in Hebrews 4:14. 4, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And he has given to his new covenant church uh, a holy priesthood. He has given to his new covenant church a holy ministry. First Peter 2.5, as we've already read. He also, as living stones are built up, a spiritual house and holy priesthood. So there, again, is no room for a Levitical priesthood uh, in the New Covenant period. The Old Covenant order of Levi has been superseded and has been replaced by the New Covenant order of Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Notice, again, how clearly Paul makes this point in Hebrews chapter 7. First of all, in verses 11 through 12, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood, this is critical, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. The priesthood has been changed. The Levitical priesthood is no more. The priesthood of the new covenant is a priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. And then likewise, in the same chapter, chapter 7 of Hebrews, in verses 17 through 18. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. So that commandment with regard to the Levitical priesthood, the Apostle Paul says, has been disannulled. It has been, it has been taken away. And what has replaced it is the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek. So understand this. There's a logical connection here. If there is no reinstituted priesthood, then there cannot be a rebuilt temple. Because if you have a rebuilt temple, you need a priesthood to administer sacrifices. They are necessarily connected one to another. But not stopping there... There will be no reinstituted sacrifices for sin because Jesus Christ's sacrifice is final and once and for all in Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 27. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens who needeth not daily As those high priests, talking about those in the Old Covenant uh, under the Levitical priesthood, as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, talking about Jesus, for this he did once when he offered up himself. There is no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus has completed, had finished that. The only acceptable sacrifices that we find in the New Testament, they're not sacrifices for sin, but they are thank offerings, whereby we offer our lives to him as living sacrifices. And our praise is offered to him in worship, according to Hebrews 13, 15, by him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to god continually that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name so we offer thank offerings but no more sacrifices for sin that is completed and again notice the logical connection here if there are no reinstituted sacrifices then there cannot be any reinstituted altar because the sacrifices have to be placed upon the altar and if there is no altar no reinstituted altar then there is no reinstituted priesthood because only priests could offer sacrifices and if there is no reinstituted priesthood then there is no rebuilt temple they are all connected one to another when Israel as a nation is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ in the future, where she will be. She will be united into the new covenant church in which the temple, priesthood, sacrifices, and ceremonies of the old covenant have all been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, all the ordinances, Those ceremonies, everything pertaining to the Old Covenant ceremonies, the ceremonial law, has been nailed to the cross, according to Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, that's the ceremonial ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Remember, dear ones, the book of Hebrews that we've been considering and looking at was written, in fact, to Jewish Christians in order to make clear to them that Jesus, the Messiah, in the new covenant has put away the old covenant ceremonies. All of its outward administration of the temple, the priesthood, the sac- sacrifices and ceremonies. Thus, Ezekiel's city and temple that we find in chapters 40 through 48, I would submit to you, are symbolic, like that of John's city in Revelation chapters 21 through 22, and must point, therefore, to the spiritual realities That is, to the beauty of the gospel, to the beauty of the earthly church of Jesus Christ in Christ, composed of both Jews and Gentiles. The second passage that we want to look at is Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. Which says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them for forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. As I said, we looked at verses 21 through 25 last Lord's Day. We saw that these verses uh, do, in fact, occur during the Messianic Age. They are realized during the Messianic Age, between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ that israel will be converted to jesus the messiah who is in these verses said to be david jesus is the greater david who would reign over his people israel in the future and over all the nations as well and that the lord we also saw in verse 25 would uh, restore uh, to israel the land that he promised to Jacob. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. But the prophecy... As we've noted, also goes on in verses 26 through 28. The prophecy goes on to state that during the same messianic period of time, the same messianic age, the Lord will set his sanctuary in the land of Israel forever. Forever. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word, olam, that is used uh, in the case of the promise of the land forever as in the case of the temple or sanctuary, forever. The same Hebrew word is used. So how are we to understand, in light of what we've just discussed, uh, with regard to the fact that in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, that that's, not speaking of a literally rebuilt temple in the future that God would bless, uh, but rather the church of Jesus Christ, how are we to understand this particular portion of Ezekiel as well where it speaks of the land being given to to them forever and then it speaks of the sanctuary being in the land forever. Well, consider these reasons uh, why... I believe, and not just myself, but, but many, many uh, scholars, divines from past and the present, why there is a distinction between the promise of the land forever and the promise of the sanctuary or temple forever. First of all, there is a distinction, I believe, to be made between Israel as a nation And Israel as a church in the Old Testament the promise of the land is realized in Israel as a nation whereas the promise of the temple here is realized in Israel as a church there are no statements uh, in the New Testament that God will forever bring to an end Israel as a nation to the contrary, as we've looked at many sermons, but Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel, that is all Israel as a nation, will be saved. That same nation that rejected Christ is the same nation that the Lord will save and bring uh, to himself and will restore the land promised to Jacob forever. However, Israel, as the Old Covenant Church, as opposed to the nation, Israel as the Old Covenant Church will come to an end and will be realized in the New Covenant Church, both Jews and Gentiles being grafted in to the same olive tree, the same New Covenant Church. In Romans chapter 11. Thus the promise of the land forever to Israel as a converted nation will indeed yet be realized. But the promise of the sanctuary or temple to Israel as a church has been already realized and will be realized in the new covenant church. which, as we've already seen, the New Covenant Church is the temple, is the sanctuary of God in whom God dwells in the New Covenant period of time. So the promise of the land will be ultimately fully realized in the new heaven and new earth. And likewise, the promise of the temple will be fully, completely realized in the new Jerusalem, the glorified church that we've already looked at, which comes down from heaven. So the ultimate completed realization of the land and of the temple are in the glorified church church, in the new heaven and new earth, and in that glorified church which comes from heaven, the new Jerusalem. Just as we find here in Ezekiel 37, that the sanctuary or temple is prophesied to be established in the in the land forever olam forever so the old covenant priesthood was likewise promised to be established forever olam in exodus 40 verse 15 and thou shalt anoint them that is the sons of aaron as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. But we've already seen from Hebrews chapter 7 that the priesthood of the old covenant has been realized in the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood is realized in the priesthood of Melchizedek is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel as a nation is not ended. Therefore, the promise of the land continues, but Israel as a church is ended. Therefore, the promise of her temple ends and is realized in the New Covenant Church, just as the priesthood, and just as the sacrifices, and just as the altar is all realized in the New Covenant Church through Jesus Christ. When God dwells with his people in Blessed Communion, The scripture speaks of God becoming a sanctuary to them. In Ezekiel 11:16, those that were sent into exile and did not this is before the temple was was destroyed, they did not have the temple, they did not have the priesthood there in their midst because they were in Babylon. And Notice what the Lord says to them through Ezekiel in Ezekiel eleven sixteen. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. God promises that he will be a sanctuary for his people, wherever they may be, even at that time, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in John 1.14, when Jesus came, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, the word dwelt there is tabernacled among us, he became a, a sanctuary. Jesus became a temple. Raise this temple up and uh, uh, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up again, Jesus said. Oh. And so he has become a temple to us. He became our temple, so that when we are in him, we become His temple here upon the earth. And finally, we see the New Testament interprets, I believe, Ezekiel thirty seven twenty-seven for us when it says My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I believe that the New Testament interprets this for us in Second Corinthians six sixteen, where the apostle Paul says, And what agreement hath The temple of God, meaning us, the church, with idols. For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's nearly the same thing that Ezekiel prophesied would happen, a little sanctuary, a sanctuary that God would establish. And the Lord says, ye are that sanctuary. Ye are that temple. And I will walk in your midst. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what was promised by the Lord to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27. So those are two passages and we'll stop there by way of looking at passages this Lord's Day we'll look at a few uh, I think there's two or three more that I want to consider that are used often uh, about a rebuilt temple uh, a reinstituted priesthood and sacrifices uh, that uh, are yet to come but again I want to be able to show and demonstrate uh, that uh, that is not what Scripture teaches, um, that we're not looking forward to a rebuilt temple. No matter how many people, how many professing Christians say that that's uh, what is coming, again, I submit to you, uh, that has not been the view of the church historical. Um, The historical church has interpreted uh, uh, these passages in the way that I have sought to lay them out Weekly as, uh, as weak as I may be, uh, nevertheless, uh, I believe and hopefully you see uh, how the Lord has uh, shown to us that there is not to be a rebuilt temple or a reinstituted priesthood. Let me leave you with a couple points of application. First is that uh, we are, as God's people, in the New Covenant, We are complete in Jesus Christ. We do not need anything to add to the perfection and completion of Jesus Christ. He has accomplished all. When he said, it is finished, that is, all of those ceremonies, all of those practices by way of the priesthood and the temple. All of those are ended. That's why the veil was rent into two parts that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The Lord has brought that to an end by way of his death and his atonement. He is our sanctuary Jesus is our high priest. He is our final and only sacrifice for sin. In him, all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament are realized. In the Church of Rome, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in Anglican Church, the priesthood The sacrifice of the Mass and the the ceremonies of holy water and incense, the altar, they all take us back to the Old Covenant. Not to realize and to enjoy all of the fulfillment and completion and perfection of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. They're taking us back rather than in the present New Covenant age. The holy days of the Old Testament celebrated by Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew Roots Movement, those movements, they take us back to the Old Covenant ceremonies. Even when Protestant churches speak of worshiping in the sanctuary, the place where God's people meet, and they call it the sanctuary. Or they tell you, come forward to the altar. These are again taking us back, maybe not intentionally, maybe unwittingly. But we need not use that kind of language that again, I believe by way of the speech, is taking us back, by way of the words, taking us back to the Old Covenant, which we should avoid in our worship. One other application is this. On the one hand, we must flee legalism in thinking that we can be right with God, that we can be accepted with God righteous before God on the basis of our law-keeping. In other words, we have to flee any view or position that would advocate justification before God by the works of the law. But, on the other hand, we must likewise flee a libertinism in casting off God's moral commandments for our sanctification and our growth in Jesus Christ. We are indeed finished with the ceremonial law of the old covenant, dear ones. But as new covenant believers, we are not finished with the moral law. Of God that is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments that's why Jesus said Matthew 5 17 think not that I am come to destroy to destroy the law or the prophets I am not come to destroy but to fulfill make them full make them complete not to abolish them but to make them full and complete Jesus, if keeping the law of God is legalism, Jesus was the greatest legalist that ever lived because he kept God's law perfectly. We can't expect to keep the law of God perfectly as he did, but we are to walk in his footsteps. We are to keep, seek to keep and endeavor to keep God's moral law. You see, Paul says in Romans 7, verses 12 and 14, that the moral law of God is holy, just, good, and spiritual. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is what he's referring to there because he quotes one of the commandments. Thou shalt not covet in that section of Romans 7. Why shouldn't we desire, again, that which is holy, just, good, and spiritual. He doesn't say it's, it's been fulfilled uh, in the sense of uh, we no longer need to keep or to walk in obedience. In fact, uh, God's moral law reveals to us the beauty of God's righteousness. We want to know what God looks like. Well, he's given us his moral law. He's told us again, this moral law reflects him. It also reveals our sin. God's moral law reveals our sin, shows us our sin. First John 3, 4. Whosoever committeth transgression trans, uh, transgresseth also the law. For sin is a transgression of the law. That's what the that's what sin is. It transgresses the law. How can we trans- transgress that which doesn't exist for us today? If sin is transgressing the law, how can we sin by way of transgressing the law if the law, the moral law, no longer exists for us to transgress? That's why I believe. God's law, God's moral law, is ignored by the church, by many professing Christians, and is despised by the world today. Because we do not want boundaries. We do not want God or anyone else by nature, none of us, want to be told, you can't do this. Our hearts tell us, we want to do this. We want to enjoy our pleasures. We want our will. But God's law says, no, it's not what thou wilt, it's what I will, that we are to walk in obedience to God's word, God's law. In fact, the Lord defines love. Want to know definition that God gives for love? The Lord defines love by way of inward and outward obedience to his commandments. First John 5 3 for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. They're not a burden to those who truly love God. They are a burden to those who are maybe playing a role. They are a burden uh, to those who have not truly been born again, who simply want to live in the way and according to their own pleasures and desires. Yeah, that's a burden. God's law, because it restrains us. It tells us we can't do that. Just like parents, when you tell your children you can't do that. Uh, it's not, it's natural for a child to say, well, I want to do it, even though they've been told, no, you can't do it. That's very natural, sinfully natural. But that's not what's good for the child, to disobey the parent at that point. It's not good for us to disobey God when he draws boundaries for us. That's not legalism. That's not legalism. That's not seeking to be justified by our law-keeping. That's saying, I want to grow in Christ, and I love the Lord, and I want to demonstrate I love him by my my obedience to his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I don't want to paint obedience to God as if it's where misery lies. To the contrary. I want you to understand and I want to grow in understanding that it's disobedience to God's law that brings misery. But it's obedience to God's law that brings blessing and joy and peace. Walking in fellowship and communion with the living God By way of loving obedience to his commandments. So we are to flee legalism, being justified, seeking to be justified by God's law. But let us not think that we are to flee the keeping of God's law. We have been set free from the ceremonial law but we have not been set free from keeping God's moral law, walking in loving obedience God's moral law by way of our sanctification and growth in Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father, We praise thee and thank thee that the ceremonial law, including the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the altar, the ceremonies, have all been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, that thy moral law and thy commandments have been left to us to love and obey and so father we pray that we would delight as David says how oh how love I thy law it is my meditation all the day and so father may we love thy law and commandments May, may we meditate upon them not in order to be justified but because we are justified that we evidence Our faith, we evidence, Lord, our justification by way of our delight to keep thy commandments. Father, hear our prayers. Grow us in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.